Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Ian Ardinger, and hosting with me today is Philip Reynolds. Hey, Ian, it's good to be here. Um, but before we get started with the show today, I just want to ask you a question that I really have been dying to ask for some time. Ask away, Philip. Okay, Ian, do you consider yourself a feminist? Are you trying to get me fired on my first day hosting? <laughs> no, of course not. Well, I'm not sure I believe you, but to answer your question, I think honestly a lot of people define feminist in different ways, and I know personally I've always struggled with how various people understand the term, so I'll just say this. I'm married to the most wonderful woman in the world, I have an amazing mother, and two sisters that all call good enough. Hey, Ian? Hey. Ian? Yep. Are you recording Problematic Women? Uh, 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 Philip, is that you? What, what are you guys doing? Well, we're getting a little bored social distancing at home. And we thought it'd be a nice way to wish all the problematic women a very happy, albeit late, April Fools. All right, I guess that's pretty clever. April Fools! <laughs> yeah, April Fools, but um, you'd still like us to finish out the show, though, right? Like, we have one planned uh, with an interview. That, and... No, that, that's really, that's okay. I, th- I think Lauren and I can take it from here, Ian. Okay, well, you know, thanks, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll just listen with everyone else tomorrow. Thanks, y'all. Perfect. Thanks, Bye, guys. Bye. Happy April Fools, y'all. Those are our buddies, Ian and Philip. They just always really want to come on the show, and we thought it would be a really great gag because we are recording on April Fools. <laughs> I think they did a pretty good job for their first time coming on the show, but yeah, I we think hope. So. <laughs> It's pretty funny. Definitely made me laugh. Well, we hope that you all are doing well and not going too stir crazy in your homes. Well, this past weekend was our second weekend practicing social distancing. I'm still here in Florida, but we had a lot of fun at my house. Uh, we actually we went out on the boat, uh, which was really fun to like get some wind in my hair and some sunshine. Lauren, I I really just don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> Here in Florida, getting to go on a boat. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm glad that you're getting outside, enjoying the great outdoors. Um, I have taken continued to take walks around my block, but uh, I've mainly been inside. I did have some good conversation with different friends over the weekend, but man, I was laying on my bed Saturday and just like, oh, I'm so ready just to hang out with friends again. But I still have a little while to go, I think, further. Um, But I'm certainly thankful for Zoom and FaceTime and all those things that allow us to keep in touch. Well, in order to keep in touch with you, we asked you to tweet at The Daily Signal using the hashtag Problematic Women with ways that you are staying busy and connecting with friends. We have a great tweet from friend of the show, Michaela Stedman. Her handle is at Michaela Stedman. And she said, day 12 of quarantine, I've learned how to draw Dutch braid and dance. Sort of. Although I could really go for a hug right now. I love FaceTiming people I miss while studying in Israel. This time has reminded me I'm never alone. How ironic. Hashtag problematic women. Uh, So fun. Thanks, Michaela. Well, we will have a new question for you all to tweet at the end of the show. So be sure to stick with us. All right, Lauren, what's on deck for today? Well, we're doing things a little differently today. We'll be featuring three short interviews on three topics that we know you all have probably been talking about and thinking about with your friends. Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Mallory Quigley, the Vice President of Communications at Susan B. Anthony List about abortion clinics fighting to stay open during COVID-19. A college senior and our former intern, Samantha Rank, joins us to discuss finishing college online and what coronavirus might mean for graduation ceremonies all over the country. Romina Bacha, director of the Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation, 
joins us to discuss what is actually in the CARES Act and what it means for you and me. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. The main reason we're practicing social distancing and staying home as much as possible is to protect some of the most vulnerable members of our society. Which brings us to our next topic. Abortion providers are pushing to be classified as quote-unquote essential businesses. However, most localities and states have started to ban and not allow non-essential surgeries. To discuss, we have Mallory Quigley, the Vice President of Communications for the Susan B. Anthony List. Welcome, Mallory. Thanks, Lauren, for having me. Mallory, your organization has put together a letter from a lot of really impressive and definitely problematic women calling out how abortion clinics are exploiting women during this crisis. Mallory, how did you put together this coalition of really, you know, impressive women? Yeah, well, you know, I think at the beginning of all this, Lauren, we were really expecting to hit pause on a lot of our activity and and begin the process of sort of, uh, you know, work this working remotely and and continuing all of our regular activities. But the abortion lobby has just been um, really working to capitalize on this crisis and promote an extreme agenda. They're pushing access to chemical abortion. They are uh, insisting on their abortion facilities staying open, even while other uh, medical entities, dentists, and others in the healthcare work to prioritize the personal protective equipment for those on the front lines with fighting the coronavirus. So it's been really frustrating to see that the abortion lobby, including Planned Parenthood, which of course is our nation's largest abortion chain, um, they've actually been looking to divert these already scarce resources. They're putting out a call for gloves, um, masks, hand sanitizer, uh, and insisting on staying open. And this is just not what we need right now. Um, as many as 7% of women who use chemical abortion will end up in a hospital with uh, complications. Um, the, they're, they're using up this personal protective equipment in the context of a procedure that already has tons of complications. Uh, and this is just not what we need overburdening our healthcare system at this time. And Mallory, I'm so glad because I, I, you brought up women and the chemical abortions that they're pushing to have women uh, take pills to do themselves at home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this just seems so dangerous for women to, to be doing. I, I know they, they say, oh, you might have some cramps, but it's it's really taxing and terrible on your body. No, yeah. That's um, right, Lauren. You're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and the FDA already very strongly regulates the chemical abortion drugs. Um, states have put limits on um, preventing this from being accessed via telemedicine, uh, really to protect the, the women involved because um, it, you, you are, you're given these drugs, you, you're left to deal with the consequences on your own to pass the body of your dead child. Um, which 
I mean, just imagine like how traumatic that must be. And then, like I said, you know, as many as 7% of um, people taking this pill are going to require surgery because it's unsuccessful. So they're going to have to go into an uh, already overburdened emergency room or hospital to, to have an abortion procedure. And this is just not how we want to be using our resources right now. And, and women deserve so much better. The abortion lobby has really been stampeding women towards abortion during this time. They, they started it very early on um, as, as the news was beginning to break and, and governments were beginning to put in these stay-at-home orders and the social distancing regulations, really scaring women towards abortion. Yeah. Uh, last week we were talking about chemical abortion on the show and uh, there was a, I think it was reproaction.org is a pro-abortion um, kind of part of the lobby. And they said that after you take the chemical abortion pills, if you have complications, you shouldn't even tell the doctor that you took it because of like fears of legal consequences. But how can a, they be pushing a drug that you can't tell your doctor that you took? Right, right. I mean, really, the just the 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 secrecy and the um, you know we have laws for a reason, Lauren. Right? I mean, abortion, um, um, uh, the, these rules on on chemical abortion are there to protect women, uh, and and any healthcare provider who truly values women's health and safety is going to abide by these regulations and not put women at risk. But as we see oftentimes with abortion. All the regular rules go out the window because abortion is, is just all important. I mean, I think that that's what we're seeing now, like with these with these governors in pro-abortion states, you know, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Michigan. These governors are limiting uh, non-essential uh, surgeries and procedures, but then they're saying, "Oh, we're carving out." Um, we're carving out abortion as an exception to this. Uh, and and it just speaks to, I think, the stranglehold that the abortion lobby has on the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, a lot of these people are, a lot of these uh, elected officials are Democrats and they're pushing in the extreme abortion agenda. So why are these centers in Planned Parenthood, why are they pushing so hard to stay open? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously there's money on the line for, for these abortion businesses um, in Pennsylvania, actually, Planned Parenthood Keystone, that was one of the places that sent out a call for personal protective equipment. They have actually closed down their locations where they don't do abortion. So the only thing you can get right now at Planned Parenthood uh, in Pennsylvania is an abortion procedure. They are not offering cancer screenings and prevention. They're not offering contraception. Um, all of that is just no more. And this really, really reveals their their true priorities. Um, there's money at stake with the abortion procedure, and um, I think if they if you know if they give in, if or if they don't fight back, um, you'll essentially have a, a state without abortion. Um, so, there, you know, that's why the, the Fifth Circuit yesterday overturned that ruling um, pro-abortion judge Yeagle in Texas. So um, but it's looking like there's going to be more and more um, litigation on this in the coming days and weeks. But abortion's only three percent of what they do. 
Oh yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and also in their, in their lawsuit in Texas, they said they don't actually use personal protective equipment, which makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes it worse. Right. They, it's like, okay, you don't care about your patients or your employees if you're not taking precautions to, you know, just do basic, you know, sanitary procedures during an abortion. But then we see Planned Parenthoods across the country sending out these emails requesting personal protective equipment. It just, they're, they're lying. Well, Mallory, if people want to follow this issue and follow the Susan B. Anthony list, how can they do that? Yeah, check us out, sbalist.org. We've got a link to uh, on the front page of our website to all of our coronavirus resources, including information about um, coronavirus and pregnancy. So if you or someone you know are pregnant and um, scared, I encourage you to check out uh, this website. There are a lot of reasons for hope. And just, you know, it's a it's a time for, for just reasoned analysis. And that's what you'll get from, from Susan B. Anthony List and Charlotte Leisure Institute, our research arm. Mallory, thanks so much for the work that you do and the Susan B. Anthony List does. Thanks, Lauren. Really appreciate you. The coronavirus has altered our world in ways some of us never could have imagined just three weeks ago. Colleges all over America have moved to online classes to complete the spring semester, and universities are having to make the really difficult decision of what do we do about graduation. UC Berkeley has asked students to take a survey saying whether they would prefer to postpone graduation indefinitely or have graduation online. Vanderbilt has already moved their 2020 graduation to May 2021, and Harvard announced they would hold an online ceremony on May 28th, the original day of graduation, and host an in-person event when it's safe to do so. To give us her insight on virtual and postponed graduations is friend of the show and former Heritage intern, Samantha Rank. Sam, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So you're a senior at Pennsylvania State University. Tell us a little bit about how COVID-19 has affected Penn State. We found out um, that we weren't going back for at least three weeks when we were on our spring break. Um, They had made the announcement that Wednesday, while everyone was home on spring break, that we would be going back at the earliest April 6th to resume in-person classes. And then a week later, we found out that the spring semester would be moved online entirely and that graduation would be postponed, but hopefully would eventually be held once everything gets cleared up. So what are your thoughts on the decision to send all the kids home and, and then potentially postpone or move your graduation online? At first, it definitely was and still is very emotional just because this was the last, you know, the last couple of weeks that I could spend with my roommates, really enjoying the college life before I had to go into the, you know, quote, real world of working and starting a job. But I'm trying to stay positive because it is giving me extra time to spend with my parents that I probably wouldn't have had if the semester was just going on as normal It's giving me uh, a time to reflect on sort of what's important in life. And as long as my friends and family are healthy, and as of right now, fortunately, nobody that I know has coronavirus, um, knock on wood. But I think it just makes everyone stop for a little bit from the go, go, go of our normal routine. There's good sides to it. 
that I think people need to focus on as well. Yeah, Sam, that's a good perspective to have. What are your other classmates saying about the situation? I think sort of the same thing, feeling a little bit down about the entire semester having to be moved online. Um, I'm on a dance team uh, in a dance club, I should say, at, at Penn State. And we had our upcoming spring showcase that was supposed to be next Friday. And that's definitely upsetting, especially for the freshmen. This was their first time that they were being involved with the spring showcase. And especially for my fellow seniors, this was probably our last time that we would be performing alongside each other and with the other members of the team. So everyone's definitely upset uh, with what's going on, but trying to just stay positive and trying to find alternatives like hosting a a virtual get together or something so we can all stay in touch. I love that. I love how people are really coming together, even though we're forced to separate. So Sam, are students worried about getting jobs after graduation, giving this situation and not knowing when society will kind of go back to normal? Well, I know I am um, <laughs> just because everything's kind of on a, a pause right now. But as far as I know, I'm, home and I'm in a safe environment and hopefully everything will get back to normal. We'll be able to find a vaccine soon or at least people will be able to kind of slow the the curve, I think it's called, um, and being able to sort of resume normal life, even if that does mean going online for a little bit or doing remote work as everyone has kind of been adjusting to. So it's definitely not the end of college, starting my career environment that I thought I was entering, but it's all about being flexible. And if this is what the situation is, then it is what it is. And I just have to figure out what I'm going to do next. If I know you, Sam, you have a bright future. This won't slow you down. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I can second that. (laughs) Well, and we do just want to say to all of the seniors out there, whether that be high school or college, or you're getting ready to graduate law school or grad school, we just want to say congratulations to you. And we're so sorry that, yeah, that this is happening right now and that some of those amazing celebrations are going to be postponed. But no, all of us problematic women are rooting for you. And we're certainly excited to see, Sam, for you, the places that you're going to go and the doors that will open for your future. So we just really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and sharing your insights with us. Yes, thank you for having me. And honestly, my college graduation was really boring. The fun part was like going out with friends and family, which you don't need the school to do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we can just do a big Zoom call and be on FaceTime together. So, <laughs> All right, we want to be invited, Sam. Okay, you, you can come. You can Great. Come. Or virtually, you can yeah, virtually, be yeah. on. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, but stay with us. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a Space Force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Descher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. 
Last week, Congress passed and President Trump signed the CARES Act, a $2 trillion stimulus package to bolster the American economy during the coronavirus pandemic. This is the largest stimulus package in American history. Heritage Foundation President Kay Coles-James said regarding the CARES Act that as a nation, we are facing a genuine crisis that threatens the lives and livelihoods of many of us. Like everyone, we are deeply concerned for our families, our neighbors, our friends, and the businesses we depend on. To best accomplish these goals, legislation should be targeted, temporary, and directed exclusively at the coronavirus. Unfortunately, the CARES Act does not pass those tests. To help us understand more about the CARES Act is Romina Bacha, director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Romina, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Virginia. So let's begin by actually talking about what is in this nearly 1,000-page document. I mean, it's it's $2 trillion. It's a massive stimulus package. Who Who's actually receiving this money? The uh, CARES Act provides uh, relief for uh, several groups impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and by the economic response including um, business shutdowns, uh, entire states being put on lockdowns and under stay-at-home orders, and millions of Americans that have already lost their jobs and filed for unemployment. The package is really intended to provide relief uh, in this extraordinary crisis to help businesses weather the storm, keep their workers employed on payroll, on health insurance, Uh, so that when we are able to contain the virus, the economy can rebound and we don't suffer major bankruptcies and losing many people losing their jobs. So that's really what it's intended to do. So for that, it has payments to individuals directly in the form of cash assistance. There is additional money for hospitals and public health providers to uh, fight the pandemic crisis. There's money to help state and local governments whose uh, revenues is falling short. We're seeing additional demand on resources like welfare benefits, Medicaid. Uh, there's also money for small businesses in the form of forgivable loans to encourage them to keep employees on payroll to help them pay expenses like rent, utilities, interest on their mortgage. And uh, lastly, um, there's also money for big corporations. This is, again, a combination of grants and loans uh, that comes with various uh, strings attached, most of which uh, are politically motivated. This is primarily intended to help some of the big industries that are impacted, including um, the airline industry, for example, that has seen a severe uh, reduction in flights, and especially with uh, travel bans internationally, they've had to ground many of their planes So overall, uh, many groups are receiving various types of relief. And in a thousand page bill, you can imagine things get complicated pretty quickly. Yeah, gosh, I can only imagine this. So in your opinion, how how effective is this bill? I mean, like you said, there's money going to kind of private and public sector and just really everywhere. Uh, is, Is this bill going to ultimately achieve, do you think, what it's intended to? So the goals we had set out for this package for Congress was that we wanted relief to be timely, targeted, and temporary, uh, realizing that this is not like the financial crisis of 2008. We're not seeing 
a crisis come from a major distortion in financial markets and overinvestment in certain sectors. In 2008, it was housing. But rather, this is a crisis that is a public health crisis, and stimulus checks aren't going to help. Uh, the problem is not that people aren't going out spending enough money. The problem is that people we're asking people to stay home. We're asking them not to go to work. We're, we're shutting down what are considered non-essential businesses. Uh, the government has basically ended economic life in large parts of the country. And especially for people who don't have a financial cushion, who are living paycheck to paycheck, who might not have savings they can rely on to help them weather a, a temporary a reduction in work hours or perhaps being laid off from their jobs during this period of time, um, that's why the relief uh, it was necessary. So the, the, the best or say I think the most effective provisions in this bill allow uh, businesses to get liquidity quickly, uh, both on the, in the form of uh, reducing tax payments, delaying tax filings. Uh, the IRS tax filing for individuals and businesses, for example, was delayed from April 15 to July 15. So for those individuals and businesses that would have otherwise had to make tax payments, that's money they can hold on to for now. Hopefully by summer, the economy will be roaring again, so it will be easier for them to make those tax payments then. There's also refundable uh, tax credits, meaning businesses can file now to uh, get cash immediately from the IRS for losses they took in 2018, 2019, and even for expected losses from now this uh, crisis here in 2020. Um, so giving them liquidity so they can pay their bills, they can keep their uh, employees on payroll and uh, on their health insurance plans. We're really trying to avoid excessive harm from uh, what we have to do right now in order to contain the spread of the coronavirus. This is really an extraordinary situation we find ourselves in. In terms of less effective policies, I think the idea behind the uh, rebates or checks to individuals was not very well thought out. What we're finding is that the money will go out uh, indiscriminately for the most part. There is some means test. For example, joint filers in households that make more than $200,000 a year won't receive any checks. There'll be a reduction uh, after $150,000 a year. Uh, for individuals, uh, it's up to $100,000 a year. If they make more than that, they receive no checks and up to $75,000, they'll receive the full amount, which is $1,200 for individuals, $2,400 for couples filing jointly, an additional $500 for every child in a family. Uh, the issue is that these checks will go out to families whether or not they are directly impacted by the crisis. So this means white-collar workers that are able to work from home that may not have seen any reduction in their paycheck, they'll get the money as well as uh, somebody who has been laid off. So it's not targeted, and I think the idea was to try and get the money out quickly, but even that we're seeing isn't working really well. Uh, we're now hearing the IRS may be able to send checks as early as three weeks from now, and then for some individuals that didn't file taxes in 2019, it could take even longer with the IRS talking about putting up a website so people can put in their information and get that money via direct deposit as quickly as possible. Uh, it just shows that it's really not that easy trying to get money out to people in this way. I have seen civil society step in in a way that I think is more effective. It can provide that more targeted aid to those who are truly needy through um, 
charitable organizations that know their communities, that know the families who are in need, that might already receive other services to, to get them that aid through private donations immediately. One initiative I want to highlight there is uh, giving together. The last time I checked, they had raised $15 million, um, and they're providing that directly uh, to families in the form of checks now. So that's something where you know we have to consider what's the federal government good at doing, what is civil society better at doing, and, uh, and uh, I think the bill is probably excessively large, which unfortunately also puts us on a worse footing. Once we are past the virus crises, we may have to deal with uh, the, the buildup of a potential debt crisis because what this package does is roughly tripling our annual federal deficit, going from $1 trillion in 2020 to now uh, well over $3 trillion, uh, which is really unbelievable because that comes close to how much the federal government was projected to collect in tax revenue for the entire year. That's roughly three and a half trillion dollars. So this is really a, uh, a huge, huge spending package. Yeah, no, I mean, the numbers, Romina, they're just really hard to wrap your brain around. I mean, two trillion dollars. What what does that even look like? And where does that come from? Because, like you said, we have this massive debt. Where are we just coming up with two thousand Two trillion dollars. I mean, all of this money is uh, being borrowed. Uh, that's that's where it's coming from uh, right now. It's uh, and that's the problem, of course. It it it, it means higher taxes in the future. Uh, we are engaging right now in a public spending effort uh, to to make up for the economic decline that we're experiencing as. We're trying to fight a public health threat um, that comes close in magnitude to a World War II effort. And uh, at, when we came out of that effort, we were massively in debt, and uh, middle-class Americans had to pay, pay higher taxes to pay that back. But, of course, we also have a government that, even before this crisis, was extremely bloated, spending um, money like it grew on trees with little consideration for how it would impact younger and future generations. And I worry that that kind of uh, attitude, that cavalier attitude with uh, which lawmakers have been spending money has also contributed to uh, an oversized package, this uh, more than $2 trillion CARES Act package, which includes, unfortunately, not just targeted relief like we had asked for, but also got uh, stuffed full of pork that has nothing to do with the crisis. Just to give you an example, $25 million for the Kennedy Center, which got roughly $40 million on an annual basis. So that is a huge increase in their budget that is not justified. Um, also, the National Endowment for the Arts and Humanities saw their budget go up to 150%. Um, they got a huge raise when we're asking people not to go to theaters and museums and the like, it makes no sense. So you, you did see quite a few politically motivated projects creep into the bill, um, and especially when uh, the left, uh, under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi, got a hold of it, um, it quickly moved away from being targeted, timely, and temporary towards just becoming another Christmas tree that uh, they were trying to load up uh, full of goodies that will make taxpayers worse off and don't address uh, the imminent threat and don't help us get past this crisis. 
Romina, we really appreciate you coming on and just breaking down what is actually in the CARES Act and how we should be thinking about it. Uh, For anyone that, you know, wants to dive in and learn a little bit more of the nitty gritty, could you maybe point them to some good resources on the Heritage website there where they can do that? Yes, we've set up a dedicated uh, website, heritage.org slash coronavirus. And uh, that has all of our great resources, economic response and analysis, as well as uh, what we know from the medical community about what's happening on the ground and what's needed for testing and tracing so uh, we can get to a better uh, place as a country where we can contain the virus spread, protect the most vulnerable, and also get people back to work. Ramina, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. The Daily Signal is doing all we can to provide you and your family with the information you need on how to stay healthy through the coronavirus pandemic. Social distancing is one of the best proven ways you can protect yourself and your loved ones. Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, and U.S. Surgeon General Adams explain why. Take a listen. Social distancing is what we refer to when we ask people to stay at least six feet apart. Staying away from people whom you might get coronavirus from or who are at high risk and whom you might spread coronavirus to. You can socially distance yourself from people in social settings by not going to bars, not going to restaurants, not going to theaters where there are a lot of people. It all just means physical separation so that you have a space between you and others who might actually be infected or infect you. Now it is that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman. That's right. Well, we decided to choose someone this week that we knew would put a smile on your faces because as one of my favorite actors, John Krasinski said, this girl really is the definition of good news. This week's problematic woman of the week is 15-year-old cancer survivor Coco. Coco just completed her final cancer treatment about two weeks ago, and many of her friends and family wanted to celebrate this amazing moment with her, but they had to create a really creative way to to do that while still maintaining six feet of social distance. Coco's friends and family lined the streets in their cars and cheered for her as she drove home. Take a listen. John Krasinski had Coco on the first edition of his in-home social media show, Some Good News with John Krasinski. Coco had a really important reminder for all of us. There are a lot of people like me going through things that have low immune systems or everyone that isn't going to be extremely affected by it. Staying home to protect people that will be is like really amazing. And it's like everyone came together to help the people that will be affected by it, which I think is really awesome. So remember, be like Coco and celebrate from a distance right now. Many of our loved ones and friends do have low immune systems. So it's really important that, uh, that we stay home. This week's Twitter question is, what creative meal have you made this week and how did it turn out? Bonus, if you include a photo, tweet at The Daily Signal using hashtag problematic women and we will read your tweet on the air. Virginia, guess what I made for dinner last night? Oh, gosh. Uh, some sort of pasta meal. That's everything I'm making Ugh. right now. <laughs> close, close. It was bacon fried rice. Oh, my gosh. 
How do you even, wow. How do yeah. you do that? I've never even heard of that. We had some leftover bacon from breakfast a couple of days before and uh, a little bacon grease that we saved. So uh, instead of using oil, I used the bacon grease and oh, right. I chopped up the bacon. So it was, it was really good. Did you add anything else or was it literally just bacon and rice? We had leftover vegetables from the day before. And then uh, my folks have some chicken. So we had some eggs in there. And uh, yeah, I think that was it. Just rice, vegetables, egg, and uh, bacon. I think that's a great place to end this week's episode. And that's going to be it for Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share conservatives need your support in the podcast world and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on spotify soundcloud itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it really does make a difference have a great week stay inside but stay active and healthy problematic women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the heritage foundation it is a product of the daily signal produced by lauren evans and virginia allen special thanks to our editor-in-chief katrina trinko we produce problematic women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.